Hello, everyone. So, haven't had a crowd like this since, well, the last time Meg was here. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us for another one of our author talk series um, uh, on this fine evening. May not have been much of a winter this year, but we're happy to pivot towards spring. And it shouldn't surprise us if our cherry trees pop in about a week or so. Uh, I'm Eric Rahm, Director of Library Services here at Hagley, uh, where we preserve and share the story of American enterprise, uh, the unfolding history of American business technology and innovation, and its impact on our world. Our collections cover the entire range of American commerce and enterprise recorded on paper, film, tape, printed, word, digital file, you name the format, we preserve it all here. Um, our mission encompasses not only collecting and preserving all these kinds of stories, but also developing events that put our audiences in touch with the stories that they transmit, tell. Uh, events like this one that you're about to experience. Um, in this installment of our author talk lecture series, like most of the library's program, um, is organized by the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, which translates into Roger Horowitz, who's the director, Carol Lockman, center manager, uh, Greg Hargreaves, assistant director, and uh, Ben Spone, the oral history program manager. So uh, I'd like first to thank them all for putting this show on tonight. And we're also grateful to other staff members on um, the Hagley Library and staff and as colleagues in facilities management uh, and our friends from Electrosound Systems and so on who often labor in relative obscurity in these events that but they're instrumental to making things go off without a hitch. But we're especially grateful that you came out tonight and in such numbers, so thank you. Uh, we hope that to see you again at other uh, series, uh, uh, events in this series. And uh, so please follow us on Facebook and sign up for our newsletter. Um, and so you can kind of keep in touch with us throughout the year and other programs. Um, you probably, I think we still have the questionnaires on people's feeds. Yes. So um, you'll have noticed this before you sit down. Uh, we do want to keep tabs of what you thought of this uh, event, so please let us know. Um, you can hand uh, those in. Uh, I guess I'll be collecting them at the end of the evening. <laughs> uh, you can actually hand them off to me. Um, so without further ado, I want to call Dr. Roger Horowitz up here to the podium to in the, introduce tonight's speaker. Thank you. Roger. God, I'm so excited. I mean, this is thrilling. This is really thrilling. Not only that you're here, but that Meg has come back, the Hagley again. Um, this is the uh, row we've been walking now for a while uh, about this. But um, I'm just, you know, I love doing these author talks, but this is particularly thrilling. And so I really want to thank you all for coming here, especially for Meg and for what we do here at Hagley. Uh, these author talks, and some people have been here before, uh, this is an effort to reach out to the community and help people appreciate the kind of research collections that we have at Hagley. That's my, that's my job, making people aware of the collections we have at Hagley. And the author talks that we, we try to put up there 
uh, feature authors who have used our materials, who in, frankly, our judgment, maybe it's my judgment, sometimes I'm right, mostly I'm right, but sometimes I'm wrong, uh, you're interested in. And we have great research done in our collections, which can be also obscure, uh, which is fine. They're not doing author talks. We do the author talks for people who aren't obscure, who have topics that will reach to a larger audience there. Um, and of course, how can a subject like the DuPont Irish be, be beaten for that kind of interest because it's so close to the community and it also draws so much on the collections here at Hagley. We have so much about the people who worked and lived here, such a rich collection of sources, oral histories, documents, pay records, artifacts, and all that, that when I first talked to Meg about her dissertation, which was a while ago, I was like, oh my gosh, someone's doing this. Someone's actually going to nail this down and talk about the people who lived and worked here. We have this kind of information. I mean, I'm a historian myself, and it, we're, we're kind of weird. We get excited when you tell us that you've got a document. Oh my God, you've got that document? You know, and that's kind of how I, how I felt when, when I saw the, pay, the, the penny ledgers, the pay of ledgers. Oh my God, you know how much they were paid in, in 1865? You know, so, but this is thrilling to me to put this together in a book and a story which can, which can tell you something about what this area is like, that people lived here, and maybe for many of you, ancestors, people who came here. Um, and then, of course, to find Meg, who has done such a wonderful job at pulling this all together, uh, it's just thrilling to be able to have this author, uh, this speaker, and have this audience which cares about it. So thank you, myself, for what we try to do here. All right, enough fussing. Let me tell you about Meg. Get her up here. Um, Meg is, of course, from this area. She grew up in Sherwood Park, uh, a suburb in South Wilmington. Um, five of six, she's fifth of six children. Uh, with a family with deep roots in the area. She went to Padua Academy for high school. Everybody here knows Padua. She went to University of Delaware for college. I teach there now. Uh, she graduated with a major that she created called Historic Preservation. Now, of course, other people do that as well. Uh, she worked for the National Park Service for a few years. Then she went to grad school at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. I got her PhD in American Studies. Um, she then taught for eight years at Marymount University in Arlington. Uh, then she went to James Madison University, also in Virginia, where she's now moved through various levels of the academic world there. And she's now professor of history and senior associate vice provost of academic programs and inequity. In other words, she's really accomplished and succeeded in the world there. And that also makes me very, very happy. Uh, now, she's been active not just as a teacher and a uh, administrator, but also in writing books. In addition to this book, she wrote a book published in, in uh, 2015 um, called Deep Currents, Race, Place, and Memory in Wilmington, about memories of the Wilmington, Wilmington North Carolina <laughs> race riot, not up here. You've got something for Wilmington, don't you, as a, as a theme for the running. But w what we're here to celebrate about is this. Black powder, white lace, the DuPont Irish and cultural identity in 19th century America, the 20th anniversary edition, um, it is just out, and it is not only just out, but if you go down the stairs in the back when you leave, it is available for sale uh, for a price that no one is going to beat, $15. Even Amazon can't beat our price. All right, I'm sorry. We're happy because we got to do some social. And not only can you get the book when you go downstairs, you can get a large cupcake because we have large numbers there, and we don't want to throw them away. So after big talks, go get the book, come back upstairs, have me excited. Um, and, uh, and that. so uh, with all that folder roll, 
I'm going to ask May to come up here and for, thank you again. Thank you. Well, hello. Thank you all for patiently waiting as you've been uh, coming in. It's been a pleasure to watch the room fill up. Um, I want to also extend my thanks to Roger and his team at the center and to Eric and everybody else at Hagley for having me back here. Um, Hagley is one of my happy places. Um, I did spend uh, a lot of time here doing the dissertation, um, but I, of course, I come back to see family and I have been back to Hagley many, many times. Um, when uh, I came, one of the years that was particularly special, um, I came back and I was married at St. Joe's on the Brandywine. That was my parish while I was doing the dissertation here and had a chance to stop by today and see the magnificent new renovated interiors. Uh, so again, very special thing for me to be here with you tonight. So to begin, uh, this is the original cover uh, of the book. It was uh, published in 2001. And you can see uh, prominently there, we're getting feedback on that. Um, and I'm white caverns. Fix that. Maybe if I stand over here a little, you won't get quite as much echo. Or is it this picking up? I'll be dancing soon. Is it better? Are we still? Yeah. Okay. You're not hearing that echo? Yeah. Okay. So. All right, we'll see how it goes. Maybe somebody can flag me if it's really terrible. Uh, so the other thing that you see up here on the screen are some of those amazing primary sources that Roger mentioned. Um, there is a petty ledger that's uh, very prominent in there, uh, a boarding book, a diary. When I first came here to do the research, I knew that there were absolutely outstanding collections about the workers. I cannot stress to you how unusual that is to have the level of specific and the quantity of specific primary source materials related to the everyday lives of ordinary working people. I sat right next door in the soda house to do my research, and way, way back in the day, I used index cards. And I wrote in pencil. That's how long a date. Today, of course, Hagley has digitized many, many, many of the materials. And the good folks here that, that work with Roger have put together this primary source compendium. This is a companion website to the 20th anniversary edition. And I hope you'll um, take some time to look at it. Uh, it's organized into chapters that follow the, the book. But you can actually go yourselves and you can look at some of these materials that I used. And once you land on a particular um, source, it of course will lead you down a wonderful rabbit hole and you can find many other um, examples. So I encourage you, and I'll, I'll make some references as I go through tonight to some of the things that are, are part of the contendium. So when I got started on all of this business, uh, as I said many, many years ago, it's going to be a theme along with gray hair. I was interested in using the powder mill community as a case study. I wanted to answer some really basic questions that hadn't been answered before about the everyday experiences of wage-earning immigrants, particularly Irish immigrants. A lot of the books that had been published at that time were what I call traditional labor histories. They focused on, frankly, Irish men, like the gentleman um, shown here who worked in, in one of the powder yards. They focused on where the men worked, 
they focused on what kind of work that they did. Sometimes they would venture out into something, you know, really unusual, like their union activity. Um, sometimes they would talk about political life and the penchant for drinking and going into saloons, right? So again, sort of this picture that I'm painting for you of what the scholarship largely was uh, to define the Irish immigrant experience. The focus, uh, even when it was Irish women, occasionally you would find a book and they were looking at Irish women who were, but even then it was this really, really sort of narrow focus on what scholars would say is their class identity, their social class. I wasn't interested in that. Um, I was interested in it, but that really wasn't like the big thing. I had other kinds of questions. And so I'm putting this um, slide up here. This is a conjectural pie chart to explain one of the core uh, theories that undergirds black powder, white lace. And it's this concept of multi-positionality. It comes out of sociology and anthropology, not history at all, in fact. And the kind of concept here is that any individual really is the sum total of many kinds of cultural identities on a regular basis. And the, I've just, again, sort of just for conjectural purposes, assigned arbitrary percentages um, that don't, don't pay too much attention to that. The idea would be if I used myself as an example growing up as an Irish American who was also Catholic and was also a woman, all of those things together are kind of wedges that are in there, right? My, my gender identity as a woman is kind of separate from my family identity, as you heard, I am number five. <laughs> and if you know anything about birth order, right, you sort of understand that, that where you are in the family. But, you know, I, I was a daughter, I was a sister. You know, now I am a, a wife and a mother. Um, as a Catholic, that, that was a part of identity. So basically, this is kind of the big picture that I'm suggesting to you. Today, I am an academic. I am a professor and I'm an administrator. That's my work. But really, that's no more than probably one of those wedges. So again, it just didn't seem to make sense to me when I was reading all these books about Irish experience, that it was collapsing down this glorious complexity for every individual. What really I was interested in is how does a complex individual like this get together with all those other complex individuals and pull together and create what is called cultural identity or group identity? So this Irish community was going to be my test case. I really wanted to dive into it and understand how did they define themselves as Irish and Irish Americans who lived here in this particular community? And then what did that process tell me about other kinds of, um, of and other individuals? My emphasis on workers' domestic life instead of just their work life, was really new and innovative at the time. There was very little that had been written about working people in general, let alone Irish immigrants. There were just a few things that, that I could point to as examples. Several prominent historians had actually called for more attention to ordinary people's home lives, you know, their, their, their domestic lives. In the introduction to the book, you can kind of read all of this methodological, theoretical stuff. It comes down to this. I heard in my head the voices of the descendants, and one descendant in particular. She came to Hagley in the 1970s when it first opened, and she said, eh, It's such a pity. All the working men have been forgotten. All these elaborately furnished homes of the wealthy don't give any indication <clears throat> of how the people lived who did the work. That was really the question for me. And we are still going strong. 
um, one of the reasons why we felt it was appropriate to do a new edition, a 20th anniversary edition, is that, in fact, it still is an unusual book in providing this kind of big, comprehensive look into Irish-American identity rather than a small, narrow slice. Um, so I, I, I do hope that if you haven't read it and you do get a chance to, to read the book, that um, you'll think about what it tells you about uh, the Irish experience in the United States writ large, but also thinking about that process of acculturation and multi-positionality and maybe the way that that could help us understand other immigrant populations then and even in the present day. So now switching a little bit to the DuPont Irish themselves, their experiences, I would argue, actually complicate what we think we know about the Irish experience in America. There are four kind of components here that I'll um, review, just some highlights for you from the book. These are four different ways in which the experience of the Irish in this community is a little different from perhaps what you think you know about the Irish. Um, so we're going to talk about their origins, um, particularly where they came from in Ireland. Then we'll talk a little bit about work in the powder. And then we'll talk a little bit about domestic life, particularly the kinds of um, furnishings that they bought and what that um, has to tell us about their cultural identity. And then we'll close it out with some information about community life. So hopefully that gives you a roadmap for the rest of the evening. I think we all know that the Irish were not welcome when they first arrived on these shores. Even in the colonial period, the Irish were not particularly welcome. It got worse over time. We know that when the Great Famine took hold, in 1845, nearly 1.5 million refugees crowded into the United States alone. Another rough million or so went around the globe. A lot of them landed in, um, in England, because it's just so closely convenient. Uh, others went to Canada, Australia. I mean, the diaspora is what we call it, right? But imagine just that volume of people, refugees fleeing hunger and starvation, flooding into the eastern seaboard cities of the United States. Refugee is a really important word, and it's one that was used at the time, as well as a word that scholars used to define this particular population of individuals. They primarily came from what is today um, the Republic of Ireland in the south, um, but especially in the west, in the area called um, Connaught, and in that particular province. They were the poorest of the poor. Actually, I have to even correct that. The poorest of the poor dies but they're pretty darn close to the bottom, these people. They didn't speak English. Many of them spoke Irish. They were emaciated, they were sick. They had ship fever, many of them, when they landed. They had very few skills um, besides the kind of agricultural skills of potato farming or some other forms of animal husbandry. When they get here, native-born Americans who are overwhelmingly Protestant and particularly of an evangelical type of Protestantism, find the Irish a dire threat to their cultural identity and the values that they consider to be American values. Already, by the 1840s, were vicious ethnic stereotypes of the Irish, even as a separate race of people. Race just didn't come out of the woodwork. This had been building for, for quite a long time. But then when that stamina population comes, it's just like, bang. I put two examples here um, from um, periodicals, popular periodical, Carper's Weekly, you may have heard of that before. 
um, on the this side, my right, your whatever, um, you see a stereotype of Biddy. Um, Biddy is short for Bridget, and this is a stereotype of the Irish servant, the domestic servant, um, who was so prominent in the middle of the 19th century. And with this, um, I know you can't read it, but basically I hope you can see that she is sitting on that man's lap. And he is a um, policeman. And this is her mistress, the woman who pays her money, coming into the kitchen. And she's confronting Bridget in the sitting on this man's lap. And basically the caption and everything about it is suggesting that Biddy is deceitful and a nude woman. God knows what she was doing in the kitchen before I arrived. The other caricature and stereotype is equally problematic, and it shows Patty, who is short for Patrick. Um, in the upper corner, hopefully you can make out that, is Uncle Sam and John Bull, and they are conferring over their common problem, the Irish immigrant. And Patty is caricatured in a way that the woman is not, but, but easily recognizable because he's got his this sort of cudgel, you know, it's not a shillelagh, but it's a very common kind of an, an Irish object. He has on the hat, you can see the little stem of a pipe there. He has on his brogues, and he's just, you know, carrying on. Um, the um, suggestion here is that Irish Paddy is a violent figure. He's a violent individual, drunken. We see the bottles there at the bottom. It's called um, an Irish jig, and I'm not sure if you can see his features clearly. Uh, hopefully you can. Um, it is what is called simianized. It is sort of an animalistic. Um, scholars are sort of still debating whether the Irish face is supposed to be ape-like or pig-like. Does it really matter? Because what they're trying to suggest is that he is less than human. So when you sort of step back and you think about the Irish experience, you know, as we're heading into St. Patrick's Day, we're like, but we've come a long way, right? We, we've triumphed over this kind of, of terrible stereotyping. And we have sort of in our minds about the famine Irish particularly, again, as though the famine Irish define the Irish experience. And that is not the case. The DuPont Irish are from Ulster. So right out of the gate, we have something different to say about this particular population. The map that I've shown here is just an inset, and primarily in green, what you're seeing there is County Donegal. Um, this is the county from which the majority of the DuPont Irish are going to come, but actually, some of the research that I did, there is a triangle. This is just obviously a, a, a rough triangle. Um, they also came from parts of County Tyrone and County Fermanagh, um, all the way up to Malin Head on the very top, we actually know. Um, that some of the Irish came from this particular cart of, of Ulster. That's important to understanding their process of acculturation because Ulster was very different from the south of Ireland. Um, even you know, be before we get into you know, questions about the modern trouble, it has always been a very distinct part geographically, um, economically, geologically. Everything about uh, Ulster is, is very different. For the Irish who lived in that part, of the country, it was actually okay. It wasn't nearly the way it was in the south of Ireland, what is today the Republic. The actual agricultural land was pretty good for farming. They had the custom of the tenant right, which gave them fixity on the land. So of course they couldn't own the land, but they had sort of 
protections for rights to, 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 to maintain the land and pass it on in a way that, um, that people in other parts of Ireland did not. Most important, they participated in the linen trade. And you think about Irish linen, I want you to actually understand that it's primarily coming out of Ulster. So even though these are farming people, and they live in cottages like this one, you know, very stereotypical kind of a, a, an Irish cottage, they are actively involved in this linen trade. They are growing flax, and then generally it is the, the women um, of the family who are responsible for scutching it and going through the process of transforming it into linen bread, and then usually men had the job of weaving it into that fine Irish, um, Irish linen. These conditions mean that the DuPont Irish had already been exposed to market values, capitalistic values. They could tell time, and they could read, and they could write. They would go to market towns like Letterken, very large one, again, that I can uh, have established in one of the chapters that many people were in and out of these market towns. That shapes their outlook and their aspirations before they even get on the boat to come over here in a way that's different from the famine experience. And the geographic origins also matter a little bit because we know that in the 19th century, the Irish don't consider themselves to be Irish. Oh, hello. That's one of them calling me now. They define themselves by county, but they particularly identify themselves by the little village. It's only when they come to the U.S. that they are all going to be kind of lumped together. They all look alike, the Irish. That's going to be a process that has to work itself out through time. Again, very similar to what happens to other immigrant populations. A lot of my family are actually German. But a similar thing was happening in Germany in the 19th century. So they identified themselves as Bavarians, for example, more so than Germans. The, uh, the German state doesn't even, in fact, become a German state until the 1870s or so. So a similar thing is happening here. Now, another thing that's different about the DuPont Irish is that their emigration was facilitated by their employers, the DuPont Company. This is very unusual. It's referred to as assisted emigration. Well, what does that mean, in assisted migration? It starts as early as about 1805, 1806. The DuPont Company prepaid the passage of the folks coming out. There were already a group of Irish who were here in Wilmington. Uh, DuPont hires them and sets them to work. He comes up to the, you know, Patty, comes up, knocks on the door, you know, and says, I'd like to bring out me ma. They send the ticket, and then they debit Caddy's wage account. And the process goes on and on and on. Generally, they would bring out a brother first, because the more men you have working here, the more money you're going to have. And then they're going to bring out parents and wives and children and siblings. The process also works for what were called um, vouchers uh, for, for, for money. You would also need to have money to just get here. You know, once you got to the port, you would probably have to buy food. You'd have to stay in a boarding house until the ship was ready to set sail, right? So it costs a lot of money, in fact. And so the DuPont is deep in this process. And the DuPont company is saying these records, really, really marvelous resources for us. What I was able to document is this process called assisted migration and also a process of called chain migration. 
because the Irish families came here like links in a chain, one right after the other. More than 1,200 of them, in fact, I was able to document how they came in these family chains, in these family groups. By 1850, when the federal census taker came through the Brandywine to record the names of everybody and where they live, 40% of the more than 2,000 individuals who lived here were actually of Irish birth. And then another roughly 25% or so had at least one parent of Irish birth. So when we talk about this being an Irish community, the numbers are astonishing. And this practice of assisted migration is going to last, in fact, into the early 20th century. So very different from what we imagine. Imagine if this trunk could talk. Edward Beacom brought it with him. He was a farmer from County Fermanagh. He came here in the 1860s, probably the late 1850s. I don't have his exact date, but I can place him here in the Powdenville community in, by 1870. You can see, hopefully, that it says steerage, and it also shows how he came. It says from Liverpool to Philadelphia. It was saved. This is a precious item in the family and handed down. He is now part of the collections here of Hagley. And his daughter Elizabeth has given a remarkable oral history. Um, she gave her oral history, however, in the 1960s. And if the technology gods are willing, I will actually have we listen to her voice, where she is going to describe for us how Edward Beacom brought out his family members. Better that you should hear her voice than my voice. There she is. That's how she looked in 1967 when she was interviewed. We'll Give a little listen here. And she married James Monroe. And uh, she went to work for Mrs. Evelina Dupont and Mr. Henry. During what? I'm not sure. Why the word what did Shane No, it just like a chambermaid, you would say. Oh, that's what they called the Felicity Servant. They, and then um, there was uh, three or four, there were three sisters that came over. My mother brought them to our place. Their name was Sarah Boston and Margaret Boston. I, I forget the other ones. And they came to our house. And then my cousin, John Cordner, that was Sarah's brother, he came to our house. And then the Maggie Martin, he wrote to my father and asked him to uh, let her come over. And he said, uh, you ask your mother if you can come. And if she says you can, I'll let you come. So she came. And she often tells about how when she arrived here, she had a sheaf of wheat on the top of her head, but she was carrying her, her uh, cloth bag in her hand. That was all her bag that she had. And she came up, set, or up the uh, rising sun and up along the Brandywine. She walked all the way. And uh, because my father was to meet her, but the boat got in a day too soon. And so she came on by herself. And uh, she came on up, and she recognized Mrs. Stevenson because she had come from Lauren. And then she asked her, and then she came on up. And uh, my father was so disappointed that she had to come that he couldn't go to meet her. What do you mean by a sheaf of wheat on her head? That was the trimming on her hat. <laughs> she paints such a vivid picture of Maggie Martin getting in early. I mean, what gumption, right? She's traveling all by herself. She arrives somehow in Wilmington, and she's walking all the way out 
So the brandy wine, sheep a wheat in her hat and carrying her baggage, and she meets Mrs. Stinkenstein. Hello. I mean, really remarkable description of how this pattern worked. This was somebody that she, she knew from Ireland. Not even a member of the family. The whole communities had been really transferred out here to the Brandywine previous process of assisted migration. All of those oral histories are now available to you. All of them. And you can go and look at them. And in that primary source compendium, you will particularly find um, Bess Beatham. That was her nickname. You can find her, in the example, and her, her story if you want to listen a little bit more to some of those examples. When you transition now to work, what it was like to work here in this particular community. Here we see an 1806 color cartoon, as it were. It's really a watercolor. That is E.I. DuPont with the fabulous hair. And he is talking to a group of Irish men who are already working for him. And we know they're Irish because there's a jug. You see it? And their little noses are red. Right? I'm telling you, these stereotypes were deep. Initially, DuPont was not impressed with the Irish. It will be, I believe, quite impossible to educate a skilled worker from the race of Irish, which they have in this country. I have employed nearly a hundred of them last year, and in this quantity there are no more than two that I would want in the powder mills. He soon changed his mind. He trained four men in 1804. They exceeded his expectation, and that led to an internal training and promotion program. So it completely changed everything that he was intending to do in terms of his employees. All of the hands employed by E.I. DuPont de Nemours and Company began as outdoor or common laborers. This gave DuPont a chance to sort of test them out. They were doing things like clearing the land, cutting down all the trees and the bushes and clearing construction sites. Then they would build the mill races that were going to be so essential for um, the, the, the powder mills to, to, to operate, frankly. Then... After they had been at this outdoor work for a while, he would decide who was going to actually start training for some of the more sophisticated kinds of skilled work on the property. You might be an apprentice in the saltpeter refinery, for example, or you might get set to the press mill where they would press the cakes of the rough powder um, for, for sale and then um, for additional refining. You had to be really, really super special to be sent to work in a powder mill and begin the process of training to become an actual powder man. Uh, they are actually called rolling mills or incorporating mills. These are the most highly skilled and most highly paid men on the property because the work was so very dangerous. You're making explosives, after all. And the metal wheels are grinding. And if it gets too hot, you don't add just enough water, bowling is what's gonna happen. The workers understood that it was dangerous work, but all work for the Irish in this period was dangerous work. You could work at a coal mine, or you could build the CNO Canal. Yeah, like that's safer. The difference here is that DuPont recognized early on to keep his employees, especially if he's going through this process of training you, he's going to have to give you something more than just wages. 
And this is what's really innovative. He implements a series of what are called direct assistant policies. In addition to the assisted immigration from Ireland and high wages, he introduces interest-bearing savings accounts, free housing, free education for children at the Brandywine Manufacturer Sunday School. Called a Sunday School, but it actually caught basic literacy and numeracy. Pensions for widows. Really remarkable stuff. Nevertheless, as they are adapting to life in an industrial community, it's difficult for them. This is an 1868 map of what was called Brandywine Banks, this region. So it goes all the way up and down this whole area called Wilmington Banks. Hopefully you can see Wilmington City, just the, the, the barest um, boundary down there at the bottom of that particular map. The very top is Rockland Mills. That is not a DuCant site, um, but it was a very thriving um, textile milling community. They had to adjust to factory time. Even though they could tell time, it doesn't mean that they were used to getting up at a particular time and getting to work, right? That is an industrial process that they had to adapt to. Uh, the noises and the smells of working at a place where saltpeter and sulfur, that smell that would have hung over the brandy wine, the dams, the races. Again, you can kind of get a sense of it. This was absolutely a company town. There's actually company towns within company towns. And you can hopefully see a little bit by the bend of the Brandywine, for those of you who are familiar, if you see the word Christiana going up here for Christiana 100 on my side, about where the N is, you can go over, that's Eleutherian Mills. That's where we are, right? That's the upper powder yard. And then you can kind of come down the Brandywine, and about in the middle in there, you'll start seeing Hagley Yard. And then hopefully you can see about a third of the way, the Big Bend. Do you see where it says Henley Clay? Okay. So there are four powder yards here, in fact, in the 19th century. And there are also a whole bunch of textile mills. And the Duconts own those too. There's a keg mill. Because Boss Henry figured out we could make our own kegs. Right? They had their own wagons that would take the barrels full of saltpeter down to the waiting ships in Wilmington. So we had vertical integration and horizontal integration. It was just a very complex industrial town here. Nothing at all like what they had left in Ireland. The most distinctive thing about working here, though, of course, was powder manufacturing. These are some of the surviving rolling mills down along Grandywine. It's really hard, I think, for us to understand what it was like back then, because the museum is so clean, and it is so quiet, and it is so pretty. On any day of the year, the mills are actually designed to force the blast of an explosion out over the water and away from the rest of the property. This is a safety design, and you can see the slope, hopefully, of those. So each one of those incorporating mills would have had a very lightweight timber-framed roof on the top of it. A marked contrast to the heavy stone walls to contain the force of the blast. So he was expecting explosions. And everything got projected out over the water. He went across the creek, becomes a euphemism for death, and defines this particular candy. You will sometimes even find in letters, she went across the creek because it is so distinctive for this particular community. Explosions were, in fact, frequent. The very first documented deaths that I am aware of, so there may have been others, 
uh, occurred in 1815, and it was two brothers, Richard and Patrick Mold, uh, Moldrin. <laughs> that was a slip. Doherty. Richard was killed immediately by the force of the blast, but Patrick lingered horribly for several days, enough time for him to dictate his will to his employer, E.I. DuPont. He left everything to his sister-in-law, Richard's wife, Anne, and their children, so he knew that his brother had been killed. And in the compendium, you will find the petty ledger where it lists his account, and you will see Anne Doherty gets her own account, and all of the money is transferred from Richard's account and Patrick's account into the widow Doherty's account. There were many other big explosions on the property as well, one in 1847, another massive one in 1890, and then there's a bunch of smaller ones in there. When there was an explosion on the property like that, particularly when there were multiple bodies, the people of the community, including the women and sometimes children, torn details with tails and rads to go around and fix up. And this is documented. I know, right? It's astonishing to think about that. For the gruesome, gruesome past, many workmen simply would not go to the powder. That's what they called it. Even if DuPont came and said, or his sons, as, as the company changed over time, Patty, I think you're doing really great. I think it's time for you to go to the powder. Hell no. Some of them were very, you know, you don't actually see that. That's my evidence. But you do find evidence that some men, it will be noted in the wage ledgers, didn't go to the powder. It's transferred someplace else. They might stay in the community. Right? They, so they knew what they were doing, this kind of work. The pensions really kept them fear. Right? They knew that it was dangerous anywhere, but they felt that if they stayed with DuPont, their families would be taken care of. Not only does the widow Darty and all the other widows get a pension for life, they get free housing for life. So what a remarkable thing in the 19th century. Now let's turn to housing for a minute. This is the romanticized 1872 um, image. Uh, what you see here on the screen is Rokeby Mill on the far side, the brick structure that is still there. And then this is Walter's Hill. Of course, they don't look like that today, but not too different. Up on the hill is Rokeby House, which was one of the DuPont uh, residences. And then just here behind the smokestack of the factory, are the porches of what was once called Walker's Banks. For those of you who are from this area, you know, they, they recently were demolished. I'm showing you this slide because, yeah, this is a factory town. So all of the industrial stuff is down on the flat land along the river. Takes up all that prime real estate. So the housing, there's up the side, built into the hillside as an economical measure and is very distinctive to this part of the world and to this particular community. The communities were scattered up and down the Brandywine, and they had great little names like Squirrel Run or Chicken Alley or Flea Park. It was actually called Free Park, but people called it Flea Park. Squirrel Run was a little bit up the hill above um, where Henry Clay Mill is, the, the Hagley Daughter Cropper. It was a little bit south of there. 
And of course, it doesn't exist anymore. It's only an archaeological site now. But but the photographs tell us what a vibrant little pocket of community it was. I want to draw your attention to the large white building here with the four windows. And hopefully you can see from this, if I call it out to you, there are two rows of porches. There's a lower row, and then there's a higher row. And the windows are configured like that because what you actually see here, this was a block of eight dwellings, four on the lower level and four above. And they intersected like this, like an L. Very economical, if you were to caught, to build tightly clustered, dense blocks of houses like this. They're up and down the brand line. He's not the only manufacturer who is building them. Some of the textile manufacturers are also building them. They all, even, you can find them up into southeastern Pennsylvania. How does that kind of a house compare to the cottage I showed you? The traditional thatched roof Irish cottage. We have no idea. We can conjecture. Um, I've done some square foot analysis from surviving examples and blueprints and things like that that survive, and they definitely are bigger houses. They have more rooms in them as well. They are better finished on the inside. They are built of stone, but inside they have finished walls. And they're painted. And they have wood trim everywhere. And they have wood floors. And they have wood ceilings. In a traditional Irish thatched roofed cottage, there is no ceiling. And everything is falling down from that thatched roof. So in some measure, we could say that these dwellings are better finished and they are bigger. Better? That's a little hard to say. I would venture to say for some of the Irish, yes, it's probably a little bigger. Now, it's not a cottage. You are, you know, kind of crowded in there with a lot of other people. But it is also not the tenement of an urban city like Philadelphia. So this is kind of the, the, the kind of questions that you ask when you're trying to understand everyday everyday life in a community in like Westland. These communities also had outbuildings, gardens, fences, orchards, things that within a little bit more like Ireland. And I discussed that in our separate chapter. But now I want to take you a little bit further inside the house. So think about some of the furnishings that they had and how they used furniture. Because this was a question that really nobody was asking before I did my deep dive here into this scenario. As the DuPont Irish acculturated to life in America and as their earnings rose, they actively participated in the consumer marketplace, particularly the marketplace in, in Wilmington, but also Philadelphia. I was able to show that the Irish here were acquiring high-status goods and chattels. That's a term from the probate inventories when they died. It turns out that those explosions generated the coal sources, like Roger said. Goods and chattels. They were buying a lot of stuff, and they were buying it much, much earlier than most historians had said. Because again, most historians are like famine Irish, the forest of the four. They're not going to be able to afford anything nice until probably like, you know, the 1890s. Anne Doherty, the widow that I mentioned, when she died in 1835, remember, this is a widow living on a pension. She had a set of six silver teaspoons, solid silver at that time. She had a mahogany bureau, like the case furniture that you think here. She had a set of china 
not crockery. And she had a walnut breakfast table. Note the words there, a walnut breakfast table. That is a special piece of furniture. It suggests that she had other tables. This is the one that made it into the inventory because this is the one that had greater value and meaning attached to it. Now, you know, we know that these are working people. So they have lots of ordinary kinds of working furniture, cheap stuff. In fact, the, the processes of um, mechanization had brought the cost of mass-produced goods of all kinds down. So working people, like the Irish here, tended to buy things that were called cottage furniture or painted furniture. And there's an example right up here. This is from the Gibbons house, that yellow chair. You would use cheap kinds of wood and maybe multiple different kinds of wood. And this would all be machine made and you would knock that chair together and you would give it a really nice coat of paint so that it looked uniform. And then you'd you know, slap some flowers on it to make it pretty, right? And you could buy a set of furniture like that fairly economically. But other kinds of furniture like that bureau signal something else was going on. And I saw lots of bureaus happening. Bureaus actually are not bedroom furniture in the 19th century. They're parlor furniture. This is where you store your linen. So a bureau would have been probably in close proximity to that walnut breakfast table or that tea set. In fact, she might have displayed her tea set on the surface with other kinds of objects. And other powder workers also had these kinds of high status woods in their homes too. They had matched sets of furniture, as I was indicating. To have a whole matched set, you're buying that all at once. Gilt-grained pictures and looking glasses and carpets. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. Some of them actually had parlors, like a whole room, in those company houses. Now, it depends on where the house was. This particular photograph is from a house in Henry Clay. And I don't know anything about the house. We don't even know who these people are. But I know they had a carpet. And I know they wanted to be photographed in that room. The whole family. I don't know where dad is. Well, this is a young boy here. He can't leave it. Maybe he's taken it. I don't know. Probably not, given the technology. But I'm pretty sure that's the mom. And she's got the kids in their best. And they're sitting there on the horse hair. You know, ramrod straight, because it is the parlor after all. And you can, again, look at these photographs, and you can look at the objects in them, look past their faces, and see how the room is furnished. Again, really what it tells me, and I do a closer analysis in there, they knew what they were doing in buying these pieces of furniture and setting this room up exactly the way that they did. We know that the Irish... Uh, immigrants, though they may have been, or even only one or two generations removed, they knew about American standards of middle-class gentility and domesticity. Many of these women started out working as domestics in the homes of the Beacocks. Well, like, that's going to be a lesson right there, isn't it? If you're a maid in one of those houses. But they also had access to women's magazines, Gotti's Ladies Book, and they liked to go shopping. And again, it's well-documented. There was a horse-drawn trolley already by the 1870s, and they could go into Wilmington, and they could see all the goods and commodities that were for sale there. And if they wanted to, they could get on a steamboat and packet boat, and they could go up to Philly for the day to go to Wanamaker's, right? They knew this. They are making conscious choices. Again, they are working people. Most of them don't have a parlor like this. 
but they had one or two very deeply symbolic objects. They were making a claim when they made that, a claim to a different style of life, a different kind of cultural identity. This is uh, an image from the Gibbons house, and this is the organ um, that is displayed inside it. The Gibbons family actually offers a really good example of how Irish immigrants are navigating this business of being working class people, but yet having middle class goods in their own homes and, and thinking about this matter of quality, which is a quote from another um, oral interview. John Gibbons, if you haven't uh, met him before, uh, was the foreman of the Hagley Guard from 1863 until 1885. He lived on Workers Hill. I knew it as Blacksmith's Hill, some of you may know that, the, the Gibbons house that is there, interpreted. He lived there with his wife, Catherine, and their five children. From probate records taken when John died, we know that their home at Hagley had a matched set of walnut parlor furniture. It had a dining set with an expandable table. I mean, expandable, right? Like it's got leaves that you can... A linen press. Very specialized thing. And we know that Catherine Givens really prized linens. She had quite a large collection, in fact, that she took special care of, and she handed it down to her daughters and her granddaughters, and they collected it. So one of the family members talked about this matter of quality. So let me just read this for you quickly here. Oh, well, I know this matter of quality, but how did she, my grandmother, know to buy good things that would last? Well, when they were down on Lincoln Street, they bought a piano. My mother took piano lessons, and mother was very proud of that piano. Mother said, $400 your grandmother paid. $400 cash, she repeated it. Now that was important. And you see Mag Gibbons, John Gibbons' daughter, she had the organs. My mother had the piano. So it seemed to be important to them to do something like that. End quotes. Indeed, quality goods were very important because they communicated a family's social mobility. Its refinement, its polish, its respectability. These are all qualities, cultural qualities, that exist independently of a family's income or whether the dad is a blue-collar warfare. From an Irish perspective, in other words, it was not a contradiction to hang white lace curtains in the home of your company house or have an Irish linen tablecloth on a mahogany table in a house that your employer owns. They did not see that as being a contradiction, quite the opposite. They saw them as linked together. Very powerful stuff here. So again, part of what I am suggesting to you in my talk tonight is that personal identity and cultural identity of groups is actually fairly complex. And simplistic categories are not always helpful in understanding the values or behavior or identities of people from the past for any of us in the present. So here's the last bit for you. I want to say a little bit about community life here on the Brandywine, because again, I think as, as we're looking towards St. Patrick's Day, the popular image of the Irish in America has the men at the pub and the wife at church. And it is a little more complicated than that. Uh, this is the Tippecanoe. Um, club, uh, the, the majority of the Irish were actually Republicans in the 19th century because that was the party of the Ducants. And so they're right here on, on Brex Lane and they were getting ready to go off 
to a, um, a parade, a political parade of, of some sort. So I like to use this image of the whole community out. And again, uh, I, I hopefully you can see that those are some women standing up there under the railroad trestle, kind of watching what all the fuss and bother is. There's ample evidence that this was a very closely knit community. They actually called themselves crickers. Some of you know that word? Good. I knew you would. So the Brandywine Crick. It's a term that, again, connects us to place, doesn't it? Sunday was the only day off in the 19th century. It was a time when the women visited with each other because women were engaged in a lot of work here, too. And I don't mean the domestic work. I mean, they were sewing bags that powder would be stored in, and they were peeling willow that was going to go and make the charcoal. So a lot of the women are actually doing um, wage labor in this community. Sundays were also a day when men could go fishing. They could go swimming in the Brandywine if it was summertime, or ice skating if it was winter and if frozen her. Holidays were very few in the 19th century. Fourth of July really wasn't even a big deal until towards the end of the 19th century. Christmas would have been a church affair for the Irish, you know, primarily, with some celebrations at home. Most celebrations in the community, in fact, are going to revolve around family events like weddings. Right. Now, I can hear you saying, well, if it was Sunday, why didn't they go to church? Here is St. Joe's, St. Joseph's on the Brandywine, if you fancy. It was built in 1841. This community is established around 1802, 1803. To go to church on Sunday, prior to the construction of this building, an Irish person would have to walk three miles each way just to get to Coffee Run in Hokesson, which was the closest church. Four miles to get to St. Peter's in Wilmington. They are not doing that. They paid pew rent, though, and this is very carefully documented in those pay ledgers. The DuPont Company would debit their pew rent, which was kind of like, you know, a tithe for people of other faith traditions. And then that money would be paid periodically to the priest. That made you a parishioner. They weren't doing that to go to Mass. They were doing that to be buried in consecrated ground and to receive home visits from the priest when he passed through. The priests are actually itinerant priests moving all around the countryside because for first half of the 19th century, there really is not enough activity out here, outside of Wilmington, for there to be separate parishes. It takes a while for that to happen, in fact. Building this church in 1841 is itself a remarkable symbolic act. It signifies the attainment of a different level of socioeconomics for them because they crowdsourced all of this and all their own money, and they built this together as a community. That doesn't mean they went to church on Sundays. Now, again, think back to some of what you know about Irish history. They were not allowed to practice their faith in Ireland under English colonial rules. And colonial, I don't mean the 18th century, I mean as a colonial power, right? They were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed to pursue the professions. The priests were removed from Ireland. The churches were unroofed. That's a problem for Catholics. 
right? That is a ritual intense faith. So they got used to having sacraments at home. This is a wake. How many of you all have been to an Irish way lately? Right? Yeah. So in the 19th century, this is again, this is a cartoon image intended to shock the American population. We can see the coffin there. We have the candle at its head. We can see the women keening on this side of the slide. And over on that side, we see people sitting around the table and they're drinking. This would have been shocking. But it was absolutely a central part of Irish Catholic tradition. The Irish week, in fact, blends folk and Catholic spirituality together. That window is open for a reason. It is so the soul can leave and probably come back on Samhain or Halloween. Right? That candle is also there to ward away. Right? So this is a syncretic, what we call a syncretic faith in the 19th century. They very much want the priest to come to them to give last rites, or at least to bless the bond and to perform weddings and baptism. It also takes a very long time for this community to have um, a school. There was no compulsory education in the state of Delaware until 1921. Who knew? And so certainly not in an Irish immigrant working class community like this. Even though the DuPonts do have the Brandywine Manufacturer Sunday School, and there is an opportunity for basic literacy and basic numeracy, these kids are not going to school. Even this photograph is from the Sunday School. And you can see how little they are, I hope. Keep them a little pot. Like this. You know, sister is probably like, don't mood. Don't you dare. By 1887, when this photograph was taken at St. Joseph's on the Brand Line, attitudes had changed quite a lot, but most families still needed their children to work, um, at least for some form of partial, partial ages. But I like to use it because one of the things that I was able to document is how their attitude about Catholicism was also changing over the course of the 19th century. So in one of the chapters, you'll find out some information. I went through the parish registers, and I dumped them all into a database, and I counted all of the baptismal names for this community through the 19th century to track the patterns over time. It turns out that Mary is a very popular name. Still at the five. And then Anne. And then Catherine. Katie, bar the door. Margaret comes in it as a nice poor. And I did the same thing for the men's names. By the time this photograph is taken in the 1880s, however, something really fascinating has happened. When these children are growing up and they're going through confirmation, so they're about you know, 13, 14 years old and they're confirmed at that time, they're taking names like Teresa, Carmela, Angelina, Rosa, Italian saints' names. They have moved into Roman Catholicism by the 1880s and into the 1890s. It's again, a sort of fascinating indicator of how their own faith tradition is changing through, through time. So let me wrap this up for you here with just a few words about the turn of the century. By the turn of the century, by about 1900 or so, Irish Americans, as well as Irish immigrants across the United States, were starting to assert a shared sense of ethnic identity. Scholars refer to this period as a Celtic revival. 
and is pretty well documented. The ancient order of Hibernians was central to this movement. That is a certificate of membership from um, one of the Delaware um, orders. The ancient order of Hibernians were attached to churches. St. Joe's on the Brandywine had its own chapter by about the middle of the 1870s. Most of the Irish parishes in, in downtown Wilmington also had chapters of the ancient order of Hibernians, and they would come together to mark St. Patrick's Day. Uh, they would have a big banquet the night before, and then in the morning there would be um, a sort of large concelebrated mass, but no parade. That doesn't happen in the 19th century, certainly, and doesn't even seem to happen in Wilmington until about after World War II or so. So the Ancient Order of Hibernians, locally at least, is one of these organizations where you would see the DuPont Irish coming together with other people in other Irish um, uh, American communities in, in and around Wilmington. But there was another organization here in Wilmington as well that um, I like to call out. And it is associated with that building uh, in a um, early uh, 20th century postcard. That was the Irish American Association. The hall was on French Street on downtown. It does not survive anymore. This particular organization was much more militant. These were the nationalists. They originally started out as members of the Clan Nagale, if you're familiar with Irish nationalism. These are the radicals who are trying to secure independence from Britain in the 19th century. They are the forerunners of a, an, an early Irish Republican movement. The folks who um, fell on Easter tide in 1916, if you're familiar with, with Irish history. So this is the more radical group, and it was established by Patrick R. Mulroney. And I have some cousins in the room that I just met who are his descendants. Patrick R. Mulrooney was the eldest of nine brothers, seven of whom came to Wilmington, Delaware. My great-grandfather was Martin Joseph Mulrooney, the second son. So I cannot entirely tie him to this building, but I'm pretty sure he visited along with all the other Mulrooneys. So these two organizations together then, again, by about 1900, represent at least the Irish in Wilmington. We can say that pretty, pretty clearly. And we know that these two groups did come together around St. Patrick's Day and marked celebrations in their way, whether, again, sort of, you know, the, the, the saloon and the, the hall that was represented here, um, the secular version, but also the spiritual version, right? They sometimes were members of both. And I hope someday to document that a little bit um, more clearly. And this is the memory and identity part. Um, Patrick's son, Hubert, establishes Mulrooney's in Ellesmere. If you are familiar with that particular watering hole, it is still, it is still there. It is no longer in the family, but you could go and raise a pint this weekend um, as you are celebrating St. Patrick's Day. So again, St. Patrick's Day is a time when, again, we sort of imagine a shared sense, a, a kind of collective memory of the Irish experienced. But... I don't have a problem with that, but I, I do want to just kind of, again, remind you, if you have only one takeaway from tonight, I want you to understand this, that the Irish experience in America is not monolithic. Uh, the Irish who worked at the Coffer Mines in Butte, Montana, had a similar but also very different experience than the Irish who were here on the Brandywine, or Irish farmers, and there were quite a few of them who actually moved out into the, the Great Plains or into states like Missouri, 
Some of the Irish were prosperous, and some of them did indeed fail miserably. Some of them were very good, very devout Catholics, and some of them were not. Some of them really did like to hang out in clubs, establish saloons, and then some of them became prohibitionists, and I just don't get that. But they did it. There were definitely some. All immigrants go through this process of acculturation that I've been trying to, to highlight for you, whether they are Irish or whether they are members of another population. And so I just wanted to leave you with these two families. Uh, these are the Buchanans who graced the cover of a new 20th century edition in front of their house on Brex Lane. Um, Elizabeth Gordon's family, uh, Lizzie, as she was known, um, was an Irish Catholic family. Albert or Yabod Buchanan was a Presbyterian family, um, but he, he worked in Woodhaller Regards. Um, and next to them, I have a um, Kurdish family who are also refugees, and they are from my town, Harrisonburg, Virginia. Harrisonburg is a designated federal refugee resettlement community. We still have a lot of the same debates going on in our country about immigration. And so just, you know, pausing and always thinking, ultimately, they are individuals, complex individuals who come together and form complex groups. I thank you very much for your attention tonight. Really, you was the Thank you. I met wonderful men. I think, are we doing questions? Yeah. Are we doing the books? Okay. Uh, was he asking to, uh, uh, Eric Ralph was out with transformers. I'm going back to St. Patrick's Day. To, uh, let's see, great sides of the team. And Eric. Do you badly waver in hand on? Eric, Charlie William Evans. Um, I've, in the back of my mind is this prejudice I've had searched so many years. What is the difference in ethnicity and in motivation of the black Irish, the influence of the Spanish aliens coming in and bad storms of arriving in Northern Ireland, and the whole sort of different sequence in the Southern Irish? And can you maybe differentiate the different motivations and different goals and different directions they take it? I'm not sure that I'd say that they do have very different motivations. I mean, we, we, you're talking about the, if you're not familiar with the term, the black Irish, or um, it's a term that's, it, I've seen different versions of it, so I'm not sure which version you have. Often it is people who look like me. They have very dark, almost black hair and blue eyes. And supposedly it is a reflection of other um, populations coming in and, and conquering. Sometimes it's going back to um, to Vikings. Sometimes you will hear black Irish referred to as people who have more swarthy complexions reflecting Spanish incursions, you know, back to even the 15th century or something. Um, do you have some more on that? Okay. Yeah, I'll add to that. Sure. On the orange order, it's called the black order. And I have my family from other brothers. Calling it. You want to talk right into the mic. Yeah. Uh, uh, and what, what I'm talking about, I like if you're a black Irishman over there, you're extremely prejudiced. You those people over there, and I have heard, I'm a, I'm an Irish Catholic, as 
ancestry, and I've heard my cousins say they're very black, and that means that they're very prejudiced or biased. Yes, I've heard that version too. And that, and that's where a lot of that comes from in mind. Yes, and I think you were adding a third version, which is that if it's a member of a particular order. Yes. Yes, exactly. So there's three different things. I was starting on the one, which is the one that I people often know about. That question to the great man was to Nicole. As an addenda to what he just said, uh, my friend Kevin Mulroney, now deceased, but his words still pretty smart, went to Louisville and was a master chemical engineer, told me that the popular theory that he thought was best, he was a back of the book indexer, you know, encyclopedia, pediatric pharmacology, those kind of books. And he said that the Spanish Armada, because a hurricane came along, went all the way around Scotland and then for a lot of them, wound up on the beach in Ireland, and that explains why so many of with dark Irish. Yes, that's one of the theories of, of the dark hair and the and sometimes a, a, of swarthier complexion is that Spanish Armada story. Right. I was wondering if you could tell us what initially prompted the DuPont family to reach out to the Irish people as opposed to, let's say, the people from France to work in the mills. Money. Originally, E.I. DuPont did hire French immigrants who were uh, already skilled powder manufacturers. He had learned to manufacture gunpowder in France even before the family came over here in um, about 1800, uh, 1799, 1800. And so, yeah, he originally thought he was going to hire French immigrants. And they caused him no end of trouble. Again, the records are here in French, and you can kind of uh, read through them. Uh, so he was looking for something cheaper. So initially he hires the Irish to do that kind of grunt labor, not at all anticipating that they were going to become his primary workforce. But it happens within the first decade, and he completely shifts. There are still some French who are going to stay in the community, um, the, the Jondel family, Francois Jondel, and there are a few others, Boisson. Peter Boisson is one of the original founders of St. Joe's, and also he was active in um, St. Peter's. So you will still sometimes see those, um, those French names. Petit Dimage is another one that you see around this part of, um, of Delaware, but very quickly he moves to all Irish. Until later, of course, some of you know, by the end of the 19th century, there are Alsatians that are hired in here. There's some Germans and some Italians who were also hired in to the powder mills. So we have um, St. Joe's being built in 1841. When did Christ Church um, become an active congregation? Um, it's in the book, so I don't have the exact date off the top of my head, but it is the same time. So what the DuPont thing. Right, what the DuPont Company does, again, they are very ecumenical. So one of the things you have to know is E.I. DuPont himself, his brother Victor, and most of the men of the family are deists. They actively sort of reject that first generation organized religion. But they support it in other people uh, and very ecumenically. So they not only support the workers in the community and they contribute themselves to the construction of St. Joe's, Christ Church, but also Greenville Presbyterian. 
and uh, what is it, Mount Salem Methodist? Yes, that they're all connected to the, to the powder mill communities. Other manufacturers up and down the Brandywine are doing similar things, but most of them are tied to that Second Great Awakening, the evangelical Protestant um, churches. And so they're really only interested in building like Baptist churches for their workers. And so the, the workers in those communities are Irish Catholic. They also have to figure out a way to come here on Sundays, which they don't. <laughs> Good question, though. Can you uh, tell us what the wages would have been and the hours and 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 his and the union movement for the workers? So there is no union movement for these workers. Um, by the about the 1890s, there are definitely some disgruntled employees. There's a group called the Never Sweats, and there's actually a Pinkerton detective who begins the book. I use that as an example. She was here undercover, hired by the Duponts to kind of infiltrate. There had been some mysterious burnings. Um, but the, the union movement never takes hold in, in this community or in the powder industry in general, which the DuPonts dominate by the end of the century. Doesn't mean there aren't workers who, who don't like working here. They generally, though, they tend to leave. Um, and that's partly related to the nature of that particular, um, that particular industry. Now, the wages is a complicated issue because it changes over the course of time. And it also changes over the course of each man's work life. Again, as he moves through that process of being a common laborer, and then he increases it. Um, so a lot of that information, though, is in Chapter 1, and you can, can dive into that. And again, you can go online and you can look at those page those wage ledgers. They are really fascinating, fascinating documents. Thank you again.